What a cool day. So another cool day happened in October of 2015. I was on Vicarage, and for those of you who don't know, Vicarage is uh, a pastor's kind of internship here, uh, where you're kind of playing pastor and getting to know kind of what it's like, uh, but you are very much so shielded from from most of the junky stuff. But you get an experience for kind of what the hours are, what it's like to be able to just experience those sort of things uh, and be a part of a ministry that's just blowing and going. And so I did my Vicarage out in Denver, Colorado, Uh, And I remember in October of that year, I was sitting at lunch with our kindergarten through third grade teachers, and we have this little walkway next to us, and in walks in uh, three ladies, our student teachers for the year, and I remember leaning over to the kindergarten teacher next to me, saying, I'm going to take that one out on a date, Uh, thinking, she doesn't need a name, she's that one. Uh, and, and, and it all, it was all going to be great. So I got to know her a little bit, uh, got to know she's a little competitive, and designed a competition to help her, you know, win a date with me. Um, but she thought she was winning dinner. So, so that was, I don't know, maybe she knew, maybe she didn't. But the competition was, uh, the principal and I worked out at 5 a.m. most mornings, and I told her, if you can make it every morning for a week, wherever you want to go to dinner, we'll go. Um, and she's like, okay, yeah, let's do that. Um, So, she did it. She did great. Wow. Hooray. You won. Who knew? Uh, And I was super psyched about that. And on November 6th, and the reason I remember that day is that's the day I got my new car, my uh, 2016 Chevy Equinox LTZ all-wheel drive with the leather seats. Uh, And it was just fantastic. It was a great day. Um, And then we went to dinner, and I, I honestly am not sure I... I'm not sure where it was, but um, it was good, I'm sure. She wanted to go there, so I'm sure it was great. But we went to dinner in that car, uh, and uh, that relationship budded, blossomed, turned into a marriage, Uh, then we got a dog, then we got a baby, now we're buying a house, and we're here a pilgrim. Uh, And it was a really cool journey, but it was built and founded on... Mom, you were not supposed to say that. Deception! It was built on deception. Yes, you were at the first service. You can't give it away. Yes, yes. Our relationship was built on deception and lies and brokenness, and and we were just dating because I was able to trick her into going on a date with me. And in our world today, in our culture today, in the brokenness of what we have today, so often that's what our relationships are built on. We think we've built it on this feeling of love, but then when it gets hard to love that person because you've been with them for so long, or maybe you got bored, you're like, well, I don't love them, so I should, you know, I should get a divorce. When in reality, love is so much more than just a feeling. There's going to be a day where you walk into that relationship and think, it's just not the same, but I still choose to love this person. Or we base it off of some sort of outlandish lie. You watch any TV show ever, and the guy or girl is probably lying about what they do and work so that the person will go out on a date with them. Are they not thinking long-term? What happens when they figure out you don't work in finance and make $10,000 million or whatever, whatever real number it is, a year, so you can fund everything they want to do? Okay? Like, like, people aren't thinking that way, and our relationships fall apart so easily. They're so fragile because we base them on sometimes lies and deception or hot air or just something we've inflated or exaggerated in order to make ourselves seem better. And so when we're talking about relationships in our culture, it's hard for us to look at a relationship that God wants with us, because all we have as examples are broken, messed up, frustrating, fragile human ones. But God wants that relationship with you, and God doesn't care what you bring to the table. In fact, God doesn't need anything from you, and He's still going to come after you, and He's still going to try to create that relationship with you. 
And how he does it is through living water. And so what we're going to talk about today is how God begins that relationship with you with living water, but then how God also maintains that relationship with you with living water. Then we're going to talk about why it's significant. What's the point? Who really cares? Because if I don't have it, I'll figure it out later, right? We're going to spend some time there. So how we're doing it today is we're going to start in John chapter 4. And you don't have to take out your Bibles unless you want to. I'm going to just summarize this story for you. And the story that comes out of John chapter 4 is the Samaritan woman who's coming to a well in the middle of the day, all right? It is the hottest part of the day, and she's coming then. And Jesus just happens to be there. He'd sent his disciples into the town, and he asked this woman for a drink. And this woman's initial reaction is, well, I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. We're not supposed to talk to each other. Why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus' response, pretty much ignoring what she said, is if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for a drink. And she's like, you don't, you don't have a bucket. How are you going to get water? Like, you're just standing here. You're just a guy. Like, this is, you're not answering my questions. And so she's kind of confused, but she's asking, where do you get this, this water you're talking about? And Jesus responds with it's a, a water that you'll never thirst again. And in verse 14, he kind of sums it up. Whoever drinks this water that I'm offering, this water that I give, will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the Samaritan woman just freaks out. She's like, yes, I want that. I'm done coming to this well. And what happens a little later on is Jesus says, okay, well, go get your husband. Let's talk to him too. And she's like, oh, I don't, I don't have a husband. He's like, oh, now, you've had five husbands. And the guy you're with now isn't a husband. Basically pointing out how he totally knew this woman is basically a prostitute. This woman is incredibly broken, and yet this is the first person that he offers living water to. i got to think we're better than a prostitute, right? And he makes that same offer to us. And so what Jesus is doing here and then reiterates in John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, is he is announcing his ministry of quenching our spiritual thirst. And in John, 37, or John 7, 38 and 39, he says, Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the Scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. And so what Jesus and John, the writer of this book, are doing right here is they're laying out how God is going to make that relationship with you happen. And it happens in two ways. First off, you got Jesus who came in order to give you that first spiritual drink, that first spiritual taste of living water. And then Jesus gives his Holy Spirit to live inside of us in order to continue to help that water flow and not only flow in us, but flow through us and to impact everyone we touch, everyone we run into. And so Jesus is announcing his thirst-quenching mission. And although these two things are different, you know, there's a starting point and then there's a continuation point that continues to, to flow through us until that day that we're called home into heaven, they cannot happen apart. You must start with Jesus, and then Jesus gives you his spirit and continues to work through you in all that you're doing. The Israelites were somewhat familiar with this. The Israelites had experienced a literal giving of water. If you were here during the summer, you heard our Exodus series and how we walked through, really, all of the Israelite journey through the Exodus. 
or through the wilderness, leaving Egypt and such, and a few times they had a story of where God provided them with water that in that moment was literally helping them to live. It was living water for them. And what they did centuries later is they continued to celebrate this, this remembrance with the festival of booths. And Isaiah 12 verse 3 captures their song that they would sing each and every time. With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. And so in this moment, they're remembering what God did for them. But what God was doing in recording this through Isaiah is helping us to move forward and look to that well of salvation, that fountain of salvation and where it would come from in Jesus. And how significant it would be for us to know that even when we fail, God continues to come back to us. He continues to push us towards this fountain of salvation. And the Israelites literally would live this story. If you know the Israelites at all, you know God would save them, they'd be good for a while, and then they'd mess up. They'd get into idols again, they'd get frustrated again, God would get frustrated with them, they'd be exiled, they'd be attacked, they'd be kind of almost wiped out, and then God would save them again. And Jeremiah 2 verse 12 and 13 helps articulate this well. And it continues to use the water imagery. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. How true is that in our lives? How often are we looking for validation and meaning and, and, and significance in, in the different things in our world, in money, in cars, and in, in, in where you live, and what kind of job you have, and who your friends are, and how you worship, and all those different things? We try to see this is where my relationship with God matters. But what God is trying to tell you is none of that matters. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you have to offer. It only matters whose you are and how He came to you. He chose you. He's chasing you. And the Israelites struggled to grasp this, and we continue to show in our own lives how we struggle the same way. We've been struggling since the fall. And yet, in the midst of this, here stands Jesus, announcing, I know all you look at is broken cisterns. I know all you search for is really nothing. And yet, here I am offering you everything freely. But when Jesus was making this claim, he, he wasn't just kind of making an offhanded comment. He wasn't just standing near water and was like, oh yeah, I'm going to give you water. This makes sense. This is a great analogy. Jesus was tying all of Scripture together. Back in Genesis when everything was created, Genesis chapter 1, just as a side note, is just a very, very quick overview of creation. Day 1, this happened. Day 2, this happened. Day 3, this happened. Day 7, I took a nap. And then in Genesis 2, we get more of a detailed account of what actually went down. And in Genesis 2, verses 10 to 14, a river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pishon, flowed around the entire land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch, called the Jihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Asher, and the fourth branch is called the Euphrates. And so even in the creation account, there are five verses dedicated to these rivers and how these rivers, as they flowed, everything that touched them flourished. And that same imagery of water continues to pump up as you continue to go through Scripture. 
As we leave the historical narratives of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and and move forward into more of the, the poetic writings, the songs that Scripture records, the very first psalm that David has for us starts with, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves neither wither, and they prosper in all that they do. The imagery that's put before us is how God's initial plan was what He created is the source of all life. What He created is the source of these living waters. And how everything they touch flourishes. And not only flourishes, will never wither. It will never die. Ezekiel continues this imagery as he's recounting a vision he had where a man was leading him around this temple that was placed on top of a mountain. And as Ezekiel's walking around, this man is showing him the different rivers. And one of the rivers that he sees right here in verse 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for healing. And something else that Ezekiel recounts that the Psalms did not is how as he was watching this water flow down from the mountain, the man that was with him was was measuring every thousand feet or so. And at first it was at Ezekiel's ankles, then it was at his knees, then it was at his waist, then it was at his neck, then it was above his head. He couldn't cross it. And what he's showing to us is that these waters continue to flow to the point where nothing can overtake them. They bring life into us, and there's nothing that can defeat that. But then he also recounts seeing how these fresh, sweet waters that come from this temple that descend down the mountain into the broken world, as soon as they hit the sea the salty, salty sea, it transforms that sour, salty water into fresh water. It's the exact image of our lives as as the waters of God's living water comes down and descends into our lives. We go from being these salty, sinful, broken people into being fresh and new creations, marked completely clean. And then as we continue to look through Scripture in Revelation chapter 22, the imagery continues. How we end our book is with how we began. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. And on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. This water imagery continues to go throughout all of Scripture's. Because God wants you to know how significant it is, how this living water that He's offering to us is so much more than just literal water. It gives you everything you need. You don't have to go and find it anywhere else. It is everything you could possibly want, desire, or need wrapped up in very simple little gifts. But these little gifts continue to run in our lives for all of eternity. And so again, here stands Jesus offering you everything you could ever want. Because originally in creation, how the relationship worked was God created the Garden of Eden, right? We agree there? God created the Garden of Eden. He put man in there, and then he put himself, all right? Here's here's man, here's Adam, and here's God. They're hanging out. They're drinking buddies, all right? They're just hanging out in the Garden of Eden forever. But then man messed up. Man sinned. 
man failed to trust in God. And so God knew, well, you you can't be with me anymore. Not because I don't want you there, but because if you stay with me, you will be destroyed. And so he has to kick him out of the greatest man cave ever. But God's not done there. God still wants that relationship. God's still working through everything that he can do. And so what God did is God said, you know what? I I still want to be there with you. I can't hang out with you. I can't be the buddy-buddy I was before, but I still want to be present with you. So go ahead and create a tabernacle. Build me a tent. Build me a place where I can reside so that at least my presence can be with you. I want to be near my friends. I want to be near my children. I want to be near my creation. And then as time went on, God was saying, you know what? I'm done with renting. You guys get your own land. I want you to build me a permanent fixture. I want you to build me a permanent temple. And that is where my presence will be. And I'll put a veil up so that way I'm a little separated from you, but at least I'm near you. I'm next to you. But God continued to point to a promise of the day when that veil would no longer be necessary, of a day when that veil would no longer be needed, the day when Jesus would come. And how God planned to do that is is one more time He was going to place Himself next to us. And John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us how so the Word became flesh and made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And how He intended to do this is told to us in John 2. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They explained. This has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, He meant His own body. And after He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered He had said this and they believed both the Scriptures and what Jesus had said. Because what God wanted to do is He wanted His anointed temple to be so much more than this physical building where His presence lived. It was no longer about the building. It was about the person. It was about the work that Jesus did on the cross, how He defeated the cross, how He defeated death, how He defeated the grave. In order to show how badly He wanted that relationship with you and to provide you with the faith you need to be saved, with the living water you need to be saved. But that was only the beginning because He sent Him down here to hang out with you. But then as Jesus was called back into His glory, He gave us His Spirit. And that Spirit continues to maintain this relationship inside of us. It continues to grow in us. And this temple that used to be a building became one man. And from that one man from this this one Savior that we have flowed out the rivers of life into each and every one of us to where God's temple was no longer one building. It was no longer one man. It was now a community of believers. And from each and every one of us, living waters flow. Which means you are called to share that living water inside of you with everyone around you. The living water doesn't stop with you. It continues through you. And just like the disciples continued to trust in the Scriptures and what they had said about living water and about how they would become the temple, we can read the same things. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Then Ephesians 2, verse 19 to 22, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are His house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 
And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus Himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by His Spirit. Then finally, in 1 Peter 2, where it says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but He was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into His spiritual temple. What's more, you are His holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And so, what Scripture is telling us is that this temple where God resides is no longer something that is next to us, it is now inside of us. He wanted to be so close to you, and He picked the closest point He could be. He is a part of you, and how He's a part of you is through that living water, through His Spirit inside of you that continues to work. But why does that matter? Why do you need living water? I mean, does it save you from anything? Does it add anything to your life? Or is it just something God tells us, no, you should have this? What's the significance? Well, let me show you. Because nothing says theology like a Lowe's bucket. So what we have is we have our relationship with God, and we live in this world. And before Jesus, before any of this grace stuff was really taking root in our lives, here we go, we just don't want to see it today. Before all this grace stuff, what we had is a relationship with God that was based on what we were able to do, okay? We have our relationship right here, right now. And we would live our lives trying to make God happy, trying to please Him, trying to offer up all the things we could do, you know, being good people, following His rules, making sure that that we were in good standing with God. And so we'd continue to offer what we thought was best and continue to give Him what we thought was significant until finally a temptation popped up and we just couldn't handle it anymore. And then when we were faced with dealing with it, the relationship shattered. Satan tempted us, burned us, crushed us, and after the relationship was destroyed, well, what do you do now? Is Satan done with you? No, he's not. He's ready to go again. And so again, the people before Jesus were trying to, to figure out, okay, well, obviously what I can do isn't good enough, so, so what I'll just make sure I'm doing is I'm following the Scriptures exactly. I'm going to worship the right way. I'm going to give all my money the right way. I'm going to make sure I check every possible box that I could have in my life to make sure that, that God is going to love me and He's going to see me as a good person because, God forbid, you know, I, I go to hell or something. And we continue to think, oh yeah, I'm basing this off of what God wants, when in reality it's what you think He wants by what you do. And you can't live up to what God's asking you to do. And so again, the temptations arise, the junk arises, and you're tempted by Satan, and you're wondering, what am I supposed to do? And your relationship shatters. Can you fix my balloon? Can you fix my relationship? No, you can't. Because we're broken. We're messed up. But then Jesus came. And Jesus offered us living water. And Jesus offered to fill us up with something more than just the hot air we try to offer up to God. Jesus fills us with a life-giving water that no matter what happens, it continues to flow through us. 
It continues to help us grow closer to Him. It continues to make us feel safer and better because it's not based on what we can do. It's based on what He has already done. And so no longer are we relying on ourselves in order to maintain the relationship. We're relying on Jesus and what He has done for us in order to do it. And what we're left with when we're tempted is how God just continues to see us through everything that's going on. God continues to, to walk us through all of the fires and the temptations and the whatever firewalks, whatever you want to think of it, what it is. But as our life around us seems to burn and crumble, our relationship stays whole because we're filled with something more than ourselves. We're filled with something more than just hot air. But when you look at yourself and you look at your relationship, you still see the scars from your sin. You still see the brokenness from what happened in your past, but it's only to serve as a reminder so you can still show the rest of the world how even though I was scarred, I am not broken. Even though I've been hurt, my God still loves me. He still cares for me. He still holds me close. And this is where the analogy kind of breaks down. Because a balloon is a very finite area. Okay? If I were to open up the balloon to share my living water with you, eventually my living water would go away. But with God, that doesn't happen. With God, there's something supernatural that's happening to where the more you give, the more you have. The more you set free, the more he fills you with because he sees how you continue to give more and more and more in order to make sure that other people know about this relationship, about this promise, about this gift that he has offered to us freely. There's nothing you have to do. But once you have it, it's not yours to keep and to hide and to just make sure no one else gets to see. It's yours to share, to let them see your wounds, to let them see your scars in order to know that there's a God who will love them in spite of that. He'll completely forget it. And he'll just see you for the awesome thing that you are. Today is LWML Sunday. For those of you who don't know what that means, it's Lutheran Women's Missionary League. All right? If you don't know what most of those words mean, know what missionary means. It's where we are called to share these living waters that God has graced you with with everyone we can. Because if you won't, who will? They're not just going to figure it out on their own. They have to be told how awesome this God is. They have to have that seed planted inside of them. And God has called you to be the sowers. You are now his temple. You are the source from which his living water flows. And so what I encourage you to do is to look out and see who can you share your living water with? Who can you share your story, regardless of how broken or messed up or garbagey it is? Who can you show that in spite of that, my God still loves me? If you're ever feeling you're low on living water, read Scripture. Talk to your Christian friends and family. Come to the table of communion. Remember your baptism. These are the places where we get living water, where we're filled with living water, where that relationship begins and where it is also maintained. And know that no matter what, your God will continue to fight for you, to fill you with this living water, to protect you from all these things. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for everything you've blessed us with, for everything you've graced us with, for how no matter what we do, no matter how we fail, no matter what sort of junk pops up in our lives, you continue to chase us, you continue to pursue us, and you continue to show us how much you love us. 
God, we ask you this day that as we have been filled with your living water, as we have been provided with this saving grace, that, Lord, you would just continue to carry us in to everything you have planned, that you would continue to help us take this living water and share it with as many people as possible, and to trust that you know what's best, to trust that regardless of what our preferences are, regardless of what we do, regardless of how we feel, you are calling us to serve your community, and you're calling us to share this living water. Lord, we thank you for your Son, we thank you for the grace that we have received, and we just look to you to lead us in what we need to do. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.